Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. Today is Friday, March 12th. My name is Owen, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. Max, how's it going, my friend, on this Friday morning? It's going well. Um, I got my first bike ride into the season, and I'm not feeling like complete crap the next day. I have some energy in my legs, and I can sit down without pain, so it's going well. Very nice, very nice. I have also been enjoying the weather. I've gone out for three walks in the last two days, which I don't know if I could ever say that before. I'm just not a walking person. COVID um, done that to you? Yeah, for sure. And and it is interesting to see how we've developed because now, like in my timeline everywhere, it's it's been one year today. Actually, is the day when Western University shut down its classes, um, and obviously yesterday was the day that the NBA shut down after Rudy Gobert tested positive. Um, so a whole year cycle now we've been at this, and uh, some of the changes have been, I guess better for some people to say the least and and a lot more have been for the worse but we continue to grind through it and it has been really really wild to see some of those first images uh a year later now do you remember where and when you were when you realized like oh shit this thing's for real and for long yeah so i spent all day in class um last year and was a little bit nervous when I was spending that. There were a lot of people who still weren't exactly sure what was going on, but I was starting to read news articles. And I think it was late in the afternoon when we saw that Laurentian University had actually shut down its classes. They were the first university to do so because they had a professor who was at a geology summit come back and test positive. Uh, and that was when it really started hitting close to home because we talk about how um, like, we shut down in March, but it would have had to have been here for at least like six weeks, even before just knowing now how fast and how quickly it spreads and how people probably were sick and didn't know what was ailing them. And so I was there in class and Laurentian shut down. I went home and I was telling myself, I don't really want to go into class anymore anyways. And then Western sent out the email that evening uh, when I was just hanging out at home and they said, we're going to take the weekend to reassess things. So don't come to class tomorrow. And then obviously you have the weekend. And then <laughs> by Sunday, everyone knew things were not going to be the same. <laughs> yeah. It, um, it escalated so quickly. I, I remember just, it was kind of crazy for us at McGill because our reading week happened the week before everything shut down. And then the week everything shut down, we had this thing called FACO going on, which we have all these frosh-like events throughout the year, kind of based, uh, just like glorified drinking excuses, but FACO is like a real drinking competition thing. But what it means is a ton of people in like rooms, like all drinking and drunk and shouting. And so I'm still kind of shocked there wasn't like this colossal outbreak at McGill because you had all these students going around the world for a week coming back and like hundreds of them if not thousands like packed in these small rooms like shirtless shouting like spreading all the germs so maybe they're I'm still half convinced I had COVID because I couldn't swallow for two weeks but no one around me had anything so 
I don't know. That was wild. That <laughs> really bizarre. And it still kind of plays into how much we've learned and how little we still know about the virus. And how much is always changing. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is the the latest news is variant cases are up in Ontario, but overall cases are are down. And so we're just trying to avoid that that third wave now. Gosh, you can just remember when everyone was talking about the second wave and half of people didn't believe it was going to happen and other people were like stocking up and preparing themselves for the long haul and all those smart people who invested in Zoom, look where they are now. And <laughs> uh, and then the second wave has come and gone and now talking about a prospective third wave, but the vaccines are on their way. And so we can only hope that Things will get a little bit better in the summer months as they tend to do so with these sort of things. Um, and that maybe by the end of the summer, we'll have the majority of the population vaccinated and things can begin to resume normalcy. Although it's been so long now, what does that even look like? Yeah, last summer feels like a dream. The, the numbers are promising though. I, I'm hearing like we might have 40 million vaccines in the country come by for the end of July. Uh, I was reading an article today about like millions of vaccines just sitting in like Baltimore and Ohio unable to be used. So maybe if Daddy Trudeau can get like a little negotiating going or something, because I don't, I think they're not allowed to use like US manufactured ones in the US or something. Yeah. And there's more companies coming out with more. And yeah, just it seems like we're headed in the right direction. My grandparents got theirs on Tuesday. Very exciting stuff. So in a couple of weeks, they will be fully vaccinated. And uh, my mom, of course, as a healthcare worker already is. So she's looking forward to going to see them at least still probably maintaining a safe space. But the less there's just less fear, right? When you know that that you are protected and um yeah, looking forward to getting to see some family members again, because it has been a very long time. All right, let's uh, get going. Yeah, I know. We've been talking about the COVID too much, and uh, you have to on the year anniversary, but we will move on now. We have an absolutely packed plate full of content for everyone today. We got hockey, we got combat corner, basketball football both kinds of football and a little bit of baseball to touch up at the end so a full buffet of sports action for you all but I wanted to start the show by talking about sports but not the sports themselves uh, and in that regard I want to refer to the media contracts of said sports two big storylines right now uh, firstly that ESPN and the NHL have locked into a seven-year agreement starting next season, uh, which I think is huge, huge, huge news for the NHL. Uh, when they were last with ESPN from 94 to 2001, very successful run for them. Um, and ESPN, like Disney, ESPN, Hulu, that is the hub right now of kind of streaming content. ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, Hulu Plus, it's taking off. Their subscription base is rapidly growing. It is kind of the perfect bundle for families because you get your sports, your kids stuff. And then Hulu has a lot of the like frontier shows that people are interested in. And I think this is a perfect par partnership for the NHL to really get their content out there. And 
Um, yeah, hopefully it will help them take off in the eyes of Americans again. Cause I know on the ESPN website, you have like the NBA, NFL, baseball, and then NHL's like in the drop down menu with all the other like pseudo sports that are considered by Americans. So we really need to get it back to the forefront. Uh, and this is a good first step in doing so. Yeah, I, I do think American hockey is on the rise. I've been kind of contemplating that they're for sure probably going to be the most serious challenger come uh, next Olympics. When you look at the up-and-coming developing players, guys like Quinn and Jack Hughes, obviously Austin Matthews, so maybe some uh, opportune timing by ESPN to try and get a little ahead of the excitement that could potentially be there speaking as a UFC fan who signed a similarly big exclusive deal with ESPN, it is huge for the revenue of the sport in that yes, like the UFC just kind of stopped having to worry about pay-per-view buys and just get like a set amount of money, each pay-per-view card, which does seems to have done absolutely nothing for fighter pay. So not something to celebrate too much, but, uh, I don't know, money going to the NHL and hopefully with the players union that will pay off a little more. Yeah. I don't know if the cap will move this year, but it certainly will. The TV rights deal is a big staple of, of making sure that that cap doesn't go down. And so as a major revenue source, that's important that the league has this deal locked up. The other deal I want to talk about is the NFL's uh, circle circling around a new deal coming up for their, for all of their games, Monday night, Sunday, uh, and and Thursday night football, it seems to be we've got a bunch of major players. Obviously, the main three networks uh, with your CBS, your NBC, and, and your Fox Sports all in there big time. Um, ESPN now is probably going to try and jump in there as well because they haven't had any kind of key games in the NFL for a while now. Um, and then a big player that people are talking about coming off the top ropes is Amazon. And they could, cause they did have a couple of Thursday night games this last season. And obviously they have the most money to spend out of any of those people and could come in and make that Godfather offer in the last, last minute of negotiations. So watch out for Amazon. I think that they need cable because that is the majority of the fan base and the viewers for the NFL they are headed towards streaming so quickly as well, just like everyone else. And so Amazon definitely has a big shot to jump in there. Um, the cap does not increase this year for the NFL, uh, which we will come back to a little bit later on in the show, but uh, it is going to go up again in the future, just because these media rights deals are just absurd in how much money they provide, uh, especially the NFL one. It's just unquantifiable. Um, and so yeah, it is. It'll be interesting to see because it it does actually make a difference who is getting the rights to games and how they want to produce them and what sort of broadcasts we're getting with commentators and graphics and uh, how they want to present different stats. Because, it, you know, like we already have the Amazon web services with the next gen stats that they do. If, if there's an entire broadcast owned by Amazon, then we'd be, we could be saying, seeing a lot more data driven broadcasts, which might be interesting for those who appreciate the data side of sports but um yeah i i think if it's the nfl you're trying to make as much money as possible you could even bid out individual games 
at certain points and just whoever wants it can pay it. We can have a Nickelodeon game. We have a TLC game with the Real Housewives. Like, I don't know, whatever floats your boat, right? It'd be fun to watch the different perspectives because it is getting a little bit stale with the same kind of demographic of commentators we're getting every every game. So yeah, opportunities here to explore new avenues of streaming and production in sport. Five, 10 years down the line, keep your eye out for that Sports Next Door Network broadcasted game. Hell yeah, that would be really, really dope. I got to work on my play-by-play. It's, it's on been the a while. long, long-term goal list. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, though. We've got that, like, 15-year hockey broadcasting experience coming back from the alley days, so I think yeah. we team. I was going to say, I was getting reps in the Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, yeah. Give you the little booth. <laughs> All right, we'll take a quick break, uh, and I think we're going to kick off the show with some hockey talk. Three, oh. And we're back, and I think the other reason I'm feeling pretty good on this day is the Leafs have snapped a three-game losing skid. Thank God it did. I did not have my hopes up heading into the third period and that I lay all of the blame at, that at the feet or the skates of one man, Connor Hellebuck. I think I saw him in my nightmares last night. That was a terrifying performance by him. Yeah, the, all that... See, this is like the inner deepest depressed Leafs fan talking right away is like just wait till the playoffs can't wait to see Connor in the playoffs like what's he gonna be like in the playoffs he's gonna be whatever like 2011 Carey Price see my (sighs) dark inner Leafs fan was saying like you guys aren't even gonna be the number one seed you're gonna like skid and fall out of the playoffs yeah but no they snap a skid which really you can put at the feet again skates of thatcher demko and connor hellbuck it it's really the last four games have looked very similar for the leafs where they have outplayed the other team for the majority of the game in generating more scoring chances having a good forecheck limiting most of the scoring chances and then just having these defensive collapses a bad giveaway a failure to step up on the man and austin matthews scoring a soccer like own goal (laughs) yeah just just these little mistakes that negate all the other great things they're doing. Um, it, it's been different players at different times. You had Justin Hall in the Vancouver game uh, tonight or last night. I felt like it was uh, Travis Dermott who had a really tough first period with like multiple giveaways, failures to keep it on the blue line. But a good team finds a way to overcome adversity. And that's what the Maple Leafs did last night. And I wanted to start by giving credit to Sheldon Keefe for his shakeups because they paid off in spade. Zach Hyman, for sure, arguably the best Maple Leaf in the past four or five games, your boy. Um, Keefe rewards him with a return to the first line and the Leafs get their first goal off Hyman battling deep recovering the puck on after we turned it over in the offensive zone, keeping the play alive. And sure enough, we find a way to score with Hyman moving it up. Uh, I can't, I think it, I can't quite remember the sequence, but a Brody shot with uh, Marner tucking in the rebound. And that's just something Thornton can't really bring to that first line that like high 
energy aggressive forecheck where you can generate a lot of momentum throwing the body and take risks because you know you have the legs to get back on the back check and then uh, the third goal came from that third line which i loved hyman kerfoot mikhaev but uh kerfoot mikhaev engvall not at all a bad replacement engvall maybe quietly one of the best Leafs also in this recent stretch uh certainly the one who's of that bottom six we were talking like really managed to cement his position and all three contributed on that goal with Engvall Hyman like workman like performance getting the puck back Kerfoot with a nice pass and Mikheyev finally finding a little finish it wasn't a breakaway so I don't feel like his uh season-long curse has been broken yet but he gets a much appreciated fourth goal of the season yeah and the other other (laughs) storyline was on Nylander I don't know you saw highlights I don't know if you saw how many scoring chances he had this game but it was absurd he could have had a double hat trick if Hellebuck hadn't been on his game my dad will still say trade him (laughs) yeah yeah it's I, I did want to talk about the second line a little because the consequence of the shuffling Keith did was Thornton ends up on the second line. And I got to say, I don't love that combination. I, I don't think there's, it doesn't seem to me like there's a ton of synergy or potential there. Just that Tavares, to me, the biggest hole in his game is a pretty average skating speed. He's not slow by any means, but he really, he has to be incredibly strong on the puck, incredibly smart with the puck, and have amazing hands, which he did to set up Nylander's only goal of the night. And to me, that Tavares taking on three guys and making that assist was the filthiest moment of the game. I know you might feel differently with uh, Matthew's goal. But anyway, Tavares just has to work so hard to make up for the speed he doesn't have. And so Thornton bringing none of that, I think, has problems for that line. But maybe give it a few games. Thornton, you don't stay this long in the NHL without being a fairly high-level hockey IQ. So maybe they can build some chemistry and make it work in a way that I can't really think of, but that does seem uh, like the downside of Chief, of Keefe's line arrangements that fell. Simmons must be coming back soon. I think it was late January he got injured, and they said six weeks. So, yeah, uh, I've kind of rambled a lot. Your thoughts? Yeah. I'll, what, I, what, I, what it comes down to is this was a good, tough stretch for the Leafs where you never want to lose games, but it is like putting a piece of that adversity that we've loved to talk about into their season. Even despite losing three in a row, they were probably the better team in the majority of those games, which you cannot complain about because in the end, that's going to bring results. Zach Hyman scored his eighth goal of the season. That would make him the second leading scorer, tied for second leading scorer on the Buffalo Sabres. And Ilya Mikheyev's fourth goal makes him have as many goals as Taylor Hall and Jack Eichel combined. So think about where the team could be and think about where we are now and enjoy the ride because the Leafs are six points uh, as their buffer in first place uh, over the Jets. One more game coming up and 
like, I don't know, Zach Hyman is going to get paid a ton of money this offseason by someone, or at least that's what everyone keeps telling themselves. But for now, let's enjoy what he's doing on the ice because I love him. He's plug and play. You can put him in any role and he's going to give you that same energy and that same ferocity. Um, and, and when McKayev scored, I, I screamed like it was another one of those. Every, it feels like every time McKayev scores, I scream and scare the crap out of my housemates. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just enjoying the ride right now with the Leafs. It's been so much fun. Yeah, to your point, I, I do really appreciate that. Like I said earlier, this game felt like it was going the same way as all of our past losses. Even you go back to that Calgary series against Riddick, it, it feels like stellar goaltending has really been the only thing that can put a dent and slow down the Leafs right now. So to have this game going the same way all the games we've been losing have been going, but find a way to win is huge. Uh, and you've got to hope the puck luck just turns in our favor at some point because even yeah. last night it was brutal with uh, that late tie-up goal they got. It, it just yeah. it's so frustrating. You outplay them for this like stretch of minutes, and then just up oh, goal, up oh, two on one, up oh, Nicky Lers is sick. What you gonna do? Um, so yeah. right now it's sitting at we've got two points. They've got three points. So you could have us coming away. As long as we get the two points uh, Saturday night, I think we're the winners of this series because, like you said, with that buffer, all we have to do is maintain it. So anything short of a regulation loss, and I think this series can be considered quasi-successful, but you, you hope to build off this performance and have a dominant regulation win. Yeah, definitely. And I just look forward to watching it. Saturday night. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> Can't complain. All right. Some other news in the hockey world. We go south of the border uh, to the Stanley Cup uh, champion two years ago, St. Louis Blues, uh, locking up their starting goaltender, Jordan Binnington, to six-year, $36 million contract, so a $6 million AAV. And Binnington has not recaptured that absolutely incredible run that he had in those playoffs. And and that was kind of the point I wanted to make on the Leafs is like, you can't really complain about solid goaltending because every team runs into a hot goalie in the playoffs. And that is what kind of decides who rises above the others. Um, And Bennington definitely had that run. And it seems like St. Louis now is rewarding him off of his rookie contract for what he has done for their team. So even if you don't agree with maybe the salary, and especially with the term, I think he's earned it. Like the flags fly forever. And uh, it seems like they're rewarding their guy, giving him some confidence. And he's been solid for them this season. And their team is, of course, really solid in front of him. And there's really not much to say to this move, but he's got to avoid getting into <laughs> tussles when he gets pulled with, with the other team because that won't help anything. But besides that, solid goalie and he'll probably be on the team Canada roster coming into the Olympics. So good, good scoop for the blues and and he'll be there for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. And I think uh, I'm hopeful. Like you think these types of contracts kind of set the pattern or like a league average. So 
six million dollar cap hit for a solid starting goalie who steps into elite levels and putting up solid numbers I, I think sounds about right in this day and age and fingers crossed we can keep Freddie for around that amount yeah I it's gonna be tough Freddie and Hyman are like the two guys who it's gonna be tough to re-sign both of them yeah we'll see it I'm curious what Hyman thinks and wants I mean you you see this situation time and time again with players who do quite well on one team and then leverage that into a big salary a big contract and then never quite achieve the level because the contract is almost like we think you can do more and I think playing on a team with guys like Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and being even the success he has on the third line I, I I'm not sure he could replicate that success elsewhere on a team like the Buffalo Sabres or the New Jersey Devils so yeah it'll be interesting to see his thoughts take I've heard like around the ballpark of uh five million from the Leafs is like what they'd be comfortable offering him that's a lot <laughs> It's a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, for what he brings, I, if we can afford it, then I think that would be worth it for sure. I, you, you look back at like the David Clarkson signing, which I think was the same amount, and I think he'd bring a lot more than that type of player. But and but you also look at like the Andreas Janssen signing and the Kasperi Kapanen, and those deals were less than five for both of those guys, and we couldn't afford to pay both of them. So, yes, Hyman is incredibly valuable, but he is also a guy where you can find someone who does a similar role. And as much as I love him and as much as I love these gritty guys, others exist. And it's tough to to reason out paying $5 million for that kind of player, especially with the way that he plays. If they offer him term as well, you could be you could see that being a very Clarkson-ish contract three, four years down the line from now. Cause because Hyman is a lot older than you think he is. I think he's 29. And mm-hmm. so um yeah, just something to be wary about. There's certainly a huge component of his game is athleticism. Yeah. All right. Is that uh all the hockey talk we got? That's all I got. <laughs> all right. We'll uh come back after a quick break. And we're back for some combat corner, the much beloved. Uh, tomorrow night, we have UFC fight night, and Max is going to break it down for us. So give me what you got, Max. Yeah, I'm going to try and switch up what I'm doing on this segment a little, where instead of trying to break down and preview as much of the card as I can, I'm just going to hone in a little more on the ones that interest me and hopefully that frees up some space to talk about other things happening in the fight world and just other thoughts because I don't want to have to pull thoughts out of my ass on fighters I'm not too familiar with and then just never have time or space to talk about other things that are interesting me. So for this card, we're going to start that off just talking about two fights, Bilal Muhammad and Leon Edwards, the main event, of course, being one of them. And this one, it's probably 
not going to be the most exciting, exhilarating, jaw-dropping, consequential matchup, but it is a really satisfying main event for me, um, mostly based on riding the hype or following the story of Leon Edwards. I, I can't think of any professional athlete who COVID-19 has treated worse. First, he has his matchup against former champion Tyron Woodley, taken away which was supposed to happen in late March of last year in England that falls off because of COVID at the time they can't really book the rematch so Woodley ends up fighting Burns and Covington and by the time he's lost 10 straight rounds to those two there's zero hype excitement or potential on his name or anything to be gained so that title shot that he certainly would have gotten after almost certainly beating Woodley. In fact, I can say really in hindsight, he absolutely would have decimated Tyron Woodley. Uh, Gilbert Burns gets his title shot. Instead, we saw how that turned out. Men, he's he's feeling a bit sulky. Like he, He's got to be so frustrated that he can't get that Masvidal fight after Masvidal like sucker punched him in the gut backstage and it's on camera because that could draw huge eyeballs, have a ton of drama, and Masvidal just wants none of it. Colby Covington just wants none of him. He feels like he's on this eight-fight win streak. He's a top dog. He doesn't need to take bottom guys. It's his turn at the top, and the UFC drops him out of the rankings for inactivity. And... Uh, he kind of has a realization, hey, I, I don't like the situation I'm in. I need to keep fighting, love it or hate it. He <laughs> says, fuck it, I'll fight Kamzat Chemaev, the UFC's golden hype boy, and magically regains his ranking. And he has this opportunity to have this fight with a ton of eyeballs in him and gain a ton of hype and momentum. And then COVID gets this fight canceled three times, first with Edwards catching it, second with Kamzat catching it, and third with long-term effects taking Chimeyev out of the fight game for who knows how long, potentially forever. So Edwards finally finds himself in the situation where he has a new opponent. He's in a main event. He's going to be fighting for the first time in almost two years he last fought I think July of 2019 and I'm excited he's he's a real mixed martial arts virtuoso the the only frustrating thing about his game is he doesn't chase the finish when he has it on the feet he but he is I think underrated in how much damage he dishes out it his game it really starts with his defense. He's very composed. He has this minimal, efficient movement. And what that seems to let him do is stay incredibly aware of his opponent and what they're offering him and get the guard up and get out of the way of almost all the shots that come to him. And then he builds this beautiful counter striking off that at range. He has one of the filthiest one-two counters I've seen. Just so crisp, so smooth, so clean, so quick. Uh, he just head snapping back. And then when it gets close, he's for sure, I think, the most vicious fighter in the clinch. His, the 
way he just manages to always find a way to land an elbow off the break is so filthy and so vicious like he, he looks so safe and uh, defensive out at open range and then it's like he's holding back all that like vin vicious i'm gonna make you bleed energy for those moments in the clinch because the there's you could just make like a 30 second montage of him barraging opponents with elbows off the clinch but it's not just elbows he's really creative he'll find a way to frame off and mix the knee if they're too worried about the elbows i've seen him step out with a high kick um sort of related i've seen he had like uh, rda on the ground in the first round and found an angle to just throw like a knee into the solar plexus while rda was kind of prone with his back like half against the cage um so really like creative violent striking in close i love that part of edward's game um when he gets his opponent hurt on the ground he goes after it but again like watching the cowboy fight watching the ed uh, rda fight he, it looks like he really rocks and wobbles his opponents and just doesn't he doesn't pursue he doesn't have that finishing like instinct on the feet when they get that deer in the headlights look so that would be the one knock i have on his offense in terms of defense uh rda did manage to land some leg kicks that was really the only thing he got going during their fight um it being a southpaw versus southpaw matchup you sometimes see that more like southpaws just don't have as much experience dealing with the outside power leg kick coming from other southpaws uh it didn't compromise him it didn't really affect him it's just something I noticed RDA landing a lot. So, and I think a consequence of that defensive style I was describing, where he's very still and minimalist, it makes it easy to get out of the way of head strikes, but not as easy to uh, jump back on the leg kicks. But he does tend to adopt like a Muay Thai stance where he gets light on that lead leg and keeps the hands up. And he did, you did see him like tapping that leg a lot in the later rounds against RDA. So, Again, I think this guy is just such a mixed martial arts virtuoso. I and he, uh, I do think he's so flexible that if, as soon as he gets into leg kick trouble, I kind of expect him to have an answer. On to his opponent, Bilal Muhammad. Uh, coming off a quick turnaround for him, he just fought in early February, late January. I, I remember telling you about this fight not too long ago. And this is a guy who's been very consistent in his career at beating all the middling prospects and then falling against top guys. You look, he was just here not that long ago, riding a four-fight win streak. He went up against the then underrated Jeff Neal and lost pretty decisively. Turned back the clock. That four-fight win streak started after a knockout loss to Vincente Luque. So this is a guy who's managed to get done against most of the division, but every time he goes against one of those real top dogs, tends to lose. Um, he's at his best when he is busy. He can do that off the front and back foot, which is very impressive. The fight against Lyman Good, he did this amazing job of moving backwards the whole time but still being the busier more active fighter which you don't see a ton of 
rounds one, like almost entirely off the back foot. And but he's at his best, I think, when he's moving forward. Um, you saw that against Diego Lima, just a clinic in pressure, always moving forward, mixing in the grappling, just to give him something to think about. Uh, fantastic jab to interrupt the offense and some slick combos. Uh, that's really his bread and butter, those like two, three punch combos. He'll start it with a jab, find a hook, get your guard up high and like mix in some rips to the body. Also, interestingly enough, kind of vulnerable to the leg kicks in that last fight against Lima. So I'm curious to see which, if either fighter tries to capitalize on that. Uh, the other thing with Bilal Muhammad's game, I wanted to say is just willpower. This guy, in his last two fights especially, Lyman Good hurt him in the third round and Muhammad just like kicked it into another gear to like jump into that grappling and stay safe for the rest of the fight. He tried to take good down a couple times in the earlier rounds, hadn't gotten it, but after uh, good like lay into that him with that hook, uh, Muhammad just kicked it into another gear and stayed so busy that he stayed out of danger for most of the rest of the round. Similarly, in that Lima fight, Lima was landing those leg kicks all night, even though he wasn't landing anything else with them. But you see sometimes those just turn the fight around, but you didn't see any indication of that in that fight. So just the willpower of Bilal Muhammad, he manages to just kind of rise above whatever adversity is afflicting him in the octagon and carry on and look relatively unaffected. Uh, his defense, like kind of contrary to Edwards, is really based off his movement. He just, like I said, it fits him. He stays very busy and uses his legs to get out of the way of most of the strikes, not so much head movement. And I think that kind of spirals into the biggest hole in his defense which seems to be hooks that that seems to be the strike that always gets him that's what Luke knocked him out with that's what Lyman Good like gave him trouble with in the third round and caught him with that's what Jeff Neal caught him with multiple times so when you talk about this matchup stylistically you have a guy who likes to counter strike likes to stay kind of still likes to let the opponent throw at him and then counter particularly with straights versus a guy who likes to stay busy, likes to throw a lot, likes to move forward and try and drown opponents in pressure. So I'm thinking this is kind of going to be a classic bull versus matador fight. I'm really curious to see uh, how the counter striking of Edwards is going to match up and what kind of improvements changes he's going to have made to his game over this last year and a half he's had three fight camps he has this chip on his shoulder he's not happy with where he's at he needs to go out and make a statement and i imagine he must be a heavy betting favorite and it's well de well deserved i personally think this is going to be one of those there's levels to this game fight and we're probably not going to see muhammad rise to the level and lose again to one of those truly elite opponents but i'm i'm really hoping to see leon edwards put on a showcase and just show 
what an excellent fighter he is because I think Muhammad, that bull style of fighting is the perfect canvas for Edwards to put on a performance. But I will be happy to eat my words if uh, Bilal Muhammad shocks me and potentially the world. And it would be a great story if it's like he's knocked on this door time and time again and this is his opportunity where he finally transcends that level and reaches the elite groupings. Either way, I'll have a storyline coming out. This could potentially determine like the next title challenger in the welterweight division because guys like Masvidal and Covington just don't seem that interested in fighting. So I underrated main event, I would say. I'm really looking forward to it. The other fight on this card that I'm excited about is our boy, the Canadian Gavin Tucker, uh, stepping in on short notice to take on Dan Ige. Uh, Ige was supposed to fight Ryan Hall, who had to pull out, and Tucker was supposed to fight Cub Swanson this May. So a bit early for Tucker, but he was in fight camp. And at his age, this is kind of the move he needs to make, like taking on a just fighting as soon as possible anything to get in there against a ranked opponent and put a number next to his own name i think this is a great opportunity for him he's i was so impressed with his performance against billy quarantillo i feel like he put it all together beautifully the trips the clinch striking um, he's such an accurate striker saw kind of where he left off against Justin Janes in his previous fight in like the second round where he just kicked it into another striking gear and just put it all together so beautifully like he was mixing in straights uppercuts hooks um, the clinch striking was vicious the knees to the body the ripping hooks to the body a couple elbows he the takedowns to just really gas Quarantillo. And he had a lot of like preemptive interrupting counter-striking, I'd call it, because it it was almost counter-striking in that it came as Quarantillo was throwing, but he was the one initiating, so a little more preemptive than like make you miss and hit. I think Dan Ige is a potentially great opponent for that style to succeed against. He's a very explosive fighter who throws a lot of loopingness to his punches, and it works really well for him. He stays very patient, very composed, keeps this like high shell guard so that he's just really hard to hit when out in the open at range. You can lunge at him and try and hit him, but that defensive style is really great for getting out of the way. And then he's going to frustrate you and just inch forward, inch forward, inch forward, and then take advantage of that explosiveness and uh, lay into the hooks. And he had, he's had success with that in most of his fights. I, like most people thought he lost the Edson Barboza fight, but he did have his moments there where he pressured Barboza, who has historically struggled with that approach against him. Uh, He, really did get shut down for the most part in the cater fight and that's kind of what i'm looking for tucker to replicate it was the the jabs and the straights that kept ige at bay it was a five round performance from cater where the fourth and fifth rounds were his best so that's it's going to be a struggle to implement that kind of dominance early because it was a fairly slow first and second round i think some people did give ige the second round but I, I do think Tucker has the style to beat Ige in 
staying composed, waiting for him to just get ready to explode. And then like you interrupt him with a jab, interrupt him with a jab and just frustrate him every time he wants to explode forward and get out of the way of that, keeping him at range. I'm curious about the grappling because Tucker, not like a traditional wrestling background or anything, but a jujitsu black belt. Uh, Ige does come from college wrestling. So I, you don't really see him use it offensively, but it does pay off in spades defensively for him. No one's really been able to dominate him like continuous rounds. Uh, Nirsad Bektik got him down for one. But I think the versatility of Tucker really helps him out. Just being able to mix it up, like make you worry about elbows, knees in the clinch, and then like find a quick trip, uh, laying on that really heavy pressure, volume striking, and then explode for a takedown. So I think there's a lot of paths to victory for Tucker in this fight. He is the underdog. I'm clearly biased. I'm not even going to pretend to hide it. Ige is for sure an elite fighter, though, and you could see there's levels to this for sure, the toughest challenge ahead of Tucker, but going to be rooting for the governor in this one and think he does have the tools to get it done. Okay, last episode, I said I wanted to do a little evaluation of the men's lightweight division with Islam Makachev's recent win. What I would like for the UFC men's lightweight title picture is to have a champion crowned by the end of 2021. But I think I say time and time again, this is the best division in the UFC men's lightweight. It's the deepest, the most dangerous, the highest level of well-roundedness just with guys who are so good at jujitsu, so good at striking, so good at everything. Because if you don't have your skills up to par in any single one of those elements, then it's a huge hole in your game in this division. It's going to get taken advantage of and you're not going to even come close to sniffing that top 15. You look at guys like uh, Benil Dariush and Diego Ferreira, that fight, like both considered grapplers who have phenomenal striking. You just don't see that in other divisions. Uh, the excellent grapplers just don't have the striking to boot. The excellent strikers rarely have the grappling to boot. And if you do have that, you're like a top five prospect. So the guys who are winning in this division right now or like have won at least one of their or their most recent fight are Dustin Poirier, Charles Oliveira, Benil Dariush, Michael Chandler, Islam Makachev, Rafael Dos Anjos, and you've got your Justin Gaethje in there as well because his most recent fight was a loss to Khabib, but that's everyone loses to Khabib, so that's kind of a neutralizer, like algebra. You divide by or if everything has that like x you just divide by x and take it out of the equation so dustin poirier has kind of been considered the number one the almost like default champion since khabib's retirement partly because of the comments of khabib and poirier is really talking like he is the champ now i i think connor just having no wins against active UFC men's lightweight fighters a victory over him shouldn't give you the belt but the level of performance he has the win over Gaethje the other wins uh, he does have to be the number one guy then 
right behind him for me is Charles Oliveira. But Charles Oliveira, a bit less deep on his resume. I mean, Tony Ferguson a year ago would have been such a crazy win as we saw what that did for Gaethje. Uh, I'm still curious what Tony Ferguson's next fight looks like and what kind of performance we see from him. And that will help evaluate how big of a win that was for Oliveira. But I think uh, you can still put him at number two. And then it gets dicey. You've got Justin Gaethje who looked so phenomenal like such a world beater against tony ferguson just and he looked like one such a perfect fighter with such like devastating leg kicks such beautiful boxing timing and accuracy the takedown defense to not struggle but habib really showed the jujitsu hole in his game almost landing that arm bar in the first round and then cinching that triangle effortlessly in the second it makes you think okay if you can get this guy to the ground the submission will likely present itself so the stock goes down a little there Benil Dariush on a fantastic win streak um you've got to put some respect on that name Michael Chandler just that knockout of Dan Hooker I mean what else can you say like a two three minute knockout of a guy who was coming off 50 minutes of war in 2020 with Paul Felder and Dustin Poirier and then Islam Makhachev who would just reminded everyone how dominant how good he is we know what that can look like in the lightweight division and Rafael dos Anjos who had that uh, performance against Paul Felder I put all those names kind of just in a dock to read off look at think about and speculate what should be done the UFC is really averse to doing tournaments and for fair enough reason it can fall off at any time and really just screw over a pay-per-view card but you can kind of think of it as an unofficial tournament with seeding where you've got Dustin Poirier in the number one bracket ready I think to step into that championship match and look for ever like the dance partner to fight for the belt with um and you could really match up any of these guys I I think it's just a question of who's willing to be the most active Charlie, Charles Oliveira, in my opinion, deserves it the most. But again, not I, the winning streak is impressive, but the there's a lack of depth on the names, and I don't know how highly to rate the Tony Ferguson performance. So I'd love to see him fight Gaethje for the aforementioned potential holes in Gaethje's jiu-jitsu game. I'd love to fight, see him fight Islam so we can maybe get some closure on the Tony uh, Habib matchup that we never got. RDA, I think, needs a couple wins. Chandler versus Gaethje is kind of like the dream just bleed matchup. And... Yeah, I just kind of wanted to rant and go over where the men's lightweight title picture sits. I think Dustin Poirier sitting, waiting for that title fight opportunity, and it's just a question of who's going to sign on the dotted line. And again there, I would like to see uh, Oliveira fight one of those four guys, Gaethje, Darius, Chandler, Islam, and the winner of that fight, Dustin Poirier. On the loser's side of the bracket, you got uh, Conor McGregor, Dan Hooker, Diego Ferreira, Paul Felder, and Tony Ferguson. I think if you had 
the winners determine the title challenge after the uh, belt is awarded, then these guys should match up against each other and maybe one of them moves forward and the rest of them should be defending against all those sharks coming up from lower in the division. But it's a fascinating mess right now in the men's lightweight division. And you just hope for some activity because none of these guys have a fight booked right now, which is kind of infuriating. Last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, what's really stolen the show in MMA media after UFC 259 is the Aljamain Sterling, Peter Yan aftermath. Um, I wanted to get you to chime in on this because it's been kind of bizarre where Aljamain Sterling should have had all the sympathy, but I don't know if you heard about this, but shortly after two pictures kind of go viral in the MMA world of Aljo posing with the belt, next to uh, Marab Devalshi, his good bantamweight friend, and holding it at a party with a glass of champagne, everyone in a celebratory mood. I mean, what does that, uh, do you, are you like, yeah, fair enough? Or are you like, come on, like, why are you celebrating with that belt? You just threw down and like cried over winning and like this unhappy manner. I understand it you've trained for something for a very long time and even if it's not the way that you would have liked to you still by a technicality are the champ and you can enjoy that moment uh he just knows he's got to come back it up when it's time to go for that rematch because uh he can celebrate and rub it in the face but in the end uh he doesn't have much to stand on in terms of why he owns that belt he may have it right now but he definitely has to defend it uh and from what it looked like from that fight, he wasn't going to be holding the belt. So it will be interesting to see him. He'll have to prove himself again. Yeah. And that you are being more sympathetic to him than a lot of the world was. I think it was really the, it seemed very two-faced because he seemed genuinely like, I don't want to win the belt in this manner. I'm not happy with this. And then those photos go probably more viral than you should than they should have and i i've been all over the place on this i think my sympathies end up with aljo because what he said in his defense is i have not posted anything this is my friends posting stuff they are happy for me i'm not gonna stop them but his twitter profile picture is not him with the belt his bio does not say ufc bantamweight champion he has not like he's not talking like he's the champion just he some of his friends were happy for him and he wasn't gonna be a buzzkill and ruin the mood and a journey of a thousand miles there's more than just one step and every step of the way into this champion fight he earned so part of having the belt is a celebration of that journey he he's trying to set up a different fight though right isn't that what i was seeing yes that's that's where uh a lot of the hate came he he posted about this stare down with henry cejudo and 
it seems like he was just trying to rub some salt in the wound for all the Piotr Jan fans, and he does fully intend to fight Piotr Jan next. I think if he said, no, I'm not fighting Jan, he would have just gotten stripped. I, yeah. I don't think he actually has any say in this matter. But yeah, I, I think that backfired a little on him. And he also, he really did not respond great to the criticism of those viral posts like he just lashing out at people on twitter really upset with i mean fair enough you you see all this shit being like and the performance of the night award goes to aljermaine sterling for his like oscar worthy acting fair enough you get pretty pissed off at that stuff but you don't make yourself a ton of fans doing that but maybe that's the point i mean it is almost impressive to turn so much of the MMA fan world against you after something like that happens because really all sympathies could and should be with him but the numbers have come out on UFC 259 and it's an estimated 800,000 pay-per-view buys and you've got to think by the first title fight the third matchup on that card most of those eyes should have been on the card so if 800,000 people saw that match, are intrigued by this storyline of Jan looking like the better fighter, um, the DQ happens, and then Aljo going full heel, and people going to be rooting for Jan to come in. As the defending champ, you're going to make bank off that. So I, I, he doesn't really strike me as the kind of guy to put all that together behind the scenes and act it out because he seems so emotional and like letting his emotions run on the fly but i this is lining up to potentially be a huge rematch that should have a lot of eyes on it and going heel is a great way to do that so i think at this point just run with it aljo like talk all the shit you're talking uh insulting yawn maybe you start celebrating with the belt to really rub the salt in the wound. Um, you're going to get all that hate for being two-faced, but that might turn into some extra money at the end of the day. But like you said, at the end of the day, you're going to have to back that up and it's going to be a tough challenge ahead. So it, it really stole the show after the week. And I wanted to end talking about that because I, I got to say, I did not see this coming at all. All right, uh, that wraps up this segment of Combat Corner. Hopefully we can keep the MMA world storylines a little more diverse and the focus on more than just me giving like a bland generic rundown of like seven fights on the fight card. The recaps will still be anything and everything that catches my eye. So I've enjoyed doing this and hope to keep working on it and keep improving. But till next time... Uh, We'll be right back and we're back and we're back uh we're gonna jump into some basketball talk which had me thrown for a loop for a second there b-ball making me think baseball and seeing a bunch of nba stuff under it but let's get right into it wait how does b-ball go baseball for you how does it not what b-ball is basketball my guy I, my guy, we've been putting like NBA or something for like the header on basketball this whole time. So I see b-ball and I think baseball. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> that, if that b-ball to me i would think basketball but i yeah. read b-ball and i was like baseball why why, oh. why am i reading about jaw moran under baseball <laughs> well i guess uh that kind of spoils the lead but the first person i want to talk about was jaw Morant, who seemingly is back after an injury early in the season uh he's progressed back from the injury and then has had to slowly reintegrate himself into the game uh and and that has shown with the stats not being what we would normally expect from him uh i have him in fantasy so i've been slowly waiting for him to to make this reemergence. but now three games in the month of march with an all-star break in between uh them and He's averaging 30 points, eight assists, and six rebounds in those three games. Not too shabby, if I do say so myself. And the Grizzlies are hovering in the playoffs. I think they are the uh, nine seed right now. And they are right behind uh, a whole mess of other teams that are all trying to make a move in the standings. But uh, definitely a team that, once again, is exceeding expectations. They did so last year, and they continue to do so this year. Jaron Jackson is still not back in the lineup, but he will be at some point. And this Grizzlies team is fun to watch because they throw out a bunch of guys who play basketball the right way and know what they're doing and uh, solid defensive presence. And uh, Jad, now that he is back to himself, he really takes over in those fourth quarters, and he he is truly a superstar. And um, because he's playing in Memphis, he may not get that same recognition, but man, second year player. And he's controlling the game. Like he does, he has it all on different strings, been really, really impressive. And he's not like a Harden or a Doncic where he necessarily needs to have the ball all the time for the offense to run. Of course it runs better with him. Uh, but he is just such a talented guy and super explosive and uh, he will, he will be an important player as we come down the stretch, deciding where things end up in this Western conference race. I will move back to the East and talk about our Toronto Raptors who absolutely heartbreaking, heart wrenching loss felt a little bit like that Paul Stastny goal last night, but at least the Leafs had overtime to make up for it. Whereas the Raptors outscore the Hawks 60 to 35 after they went down by 19 points early in the second quarter, they have a 10 point lead at one point. It slowly gets uh, sawed away and the Hawks men managed to uh, get a stop, have the ball with seven seconds left. Tony Snell wide open three point dagger at the buzzer to beat the Raptors who again, were were without, three of their top starters. Um, Baines was fine. Boucher was fine. Powell was, has been just superb uh, in every opportunity that he's been getting. Kyle becomes second all time in Raptors franchise scoring pa- passing Chris Bosch last night, but got off to a slow start. And yeah, it's really, really unfortunate that we haven't had our starters for the last three games and have lost all three of them but you can't really complain because all the other teams have had to deal with stuff like this. And so it's, it's, they get their guys back for the next one. They'll have to regroup um, and, and really come up with some good effort over the next couple of weeks. Cause they are slowly slipping down the standings now with this little uh, spurt of COVID that they've had to deal with and uh, going to need them to really bounce back. And, and it's going to be tough after a heartbreaking loss like this one, like truly, 
rip your heart out when it's Tony Snell, the Raptor killer, who on some nights may not score a single basket, but he hits the game-winning three. <sighs> Just so tough to see because there were some great moments in that game last night. But we move on. Uh, and if there's one thing this Raptors team has, it's heart. And so I expect them to bounce back. Uh, so looking forward to the next one this weekend. I've named the segment B-Ball Talk because I'm not just going to be talking about the NBA, Max. I will also be talking about college ball because this week has been absolutely fantastic. It is the conference championship week. Uh, we've got all the top-seeded teams going up in a mini tournament to decide who wins the conference and will getting the and who will be getting those bids to the much loved March Madness coming up and uh, always a fun, fun couple of weeks. Really looking forward to it. Um, I am nowhere near able to consume all of the endless games that go on during this time, but there were a couple moments that stood out to me uh, that I would love to discuss briefly. Cade Cunningham and the Oklahoma State Cowboys beating West Virginia in their first round uh, matchup in their conference tournament came down to a last second possession. Uh, Deuce McBride was unbelievable in that game uh, for West Virginia and the ball gets kicked out to a, (laughs) or McBride was isolated. He got blocked on a three point attempt, but West Virginia got the rebound, kicked it out to a wide open three point shooter. He pump faked the guy flying by and got the shot off, made the three, but it was after the buzzer had sounded. And so uh, the, they were unable to tie the game late and Oklahoma gets the uh, ups, upset. And now that they have played in this tournament, they are eligible for the March Madness tournament. So we'll most likely see Cade there and it will be fun to watch him because of course he is a highly touted prospect coming up for this year's NBA draft. Another game that came down to a buzzer beating moment was <laughs> Virginia and Syracuse and uh, this was a 1-8 matchup in the in their uh, conference tournament and Virginia hitting the game-winning three-pointer. And I mostly just wanted to talk about this because that those are the moments when it feels like March is back. When March Madness, because we've missed it so dearly. It's been two years now since we've seen March Madness. And just like moments like that are what you live for in this tournament. Those last second shots where it's pure jubilation and pure distraught on either end. And anything can happen in college basketball. And so it's it's really fun to see that moment and be reminded that we're just a couple days away from that tournament getting underway and and really having an awesome time in the sports calendar. And then finally, I wanted to shout out uh, your sister school, USC, getting the win in double overtime. So grinding it out and hopefully they get a bid to the tournament because Evan Mobley is projected to be a top three pick and a guy that you want to see play on the big stage and so uh, looking forward to see all these guys playing because we had Jalen Green, Dacian Nix, Isaiah Todd and and others playing in and and Jonathan Kaminga playing in the G League bubble we got to see their run and how they would perform on the highest stage and they did well Uh, and now we get to see the college prospects really show their stuff in the in the March Madness tournament so really really fun stuff ahead of us in the next couple of weeks in March Madness and I will do my best to continue to catch up on college basketball because there's so much going on um, and I'll be able to provide a couple of insights in what, what I've seen from these prospects and what I've seen from these teams um, my bracket will get absolutely 
burn to a crisp in the very first day, but it'll, it's always fun to make brackets. So I'll probably do that too. All righty. We will move into the other ball sports. Uh, we have football fan cave action coming right at you now. I mentioned that the NFL media rights deal is underway and we are going to get news from that, whatever, in the next couple of months and who's going to be owning all these big games and what the salary cap is going to look like. We know that for next year, the salary cap is not going up, which means teams are getting the squeeze. The Saints, we know that they somehow are always up against the cap. Um, and it shows yesterday with the Kansas City Chiefs releasing two of their top offensive linemen. Eric Fisher and Mitchell Schwartz. Uh, Mitchell Schwartz, of course, was a, a all pro two years ago. And yeah, it's basically all I get, all that comes to my mind is the meme of Patrick Mahomes running for his life. Because if if they can't afford to bring in some linemen, they just lost their two best guys. So it, it feels like that might actually be in the more in the future for Mahomes. Lots of running for his life. It's something that the Chiefs really have to be alarmed by. But that's what happens when the cap doesn't move and, and you're a team that's competing for a Super Bowl. You're maxed out on the salary cap and you got to figure out ways to save money. And so a lot of these middle class players are going to get the squeeze. If you're not a rookie deal guy or if you're not a, a kind of practice roster, one year low salary contract, or if you're not the Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, who we'll get to in a second then you're really going to get the squeeze in that middle income bracket. And so we're already starting to see signs of that. But not for Dak, as I just mentioned, as he inks a four-year, $160 million contract with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, they have committed to their guy. He bet on himself way back when they offered him. I think it was four years, 35. Uh, he said, I'm worth more than that. And we saw with the uh, Ben Dinucci throwing ducks. We had Andy Dalton, not great. Uh, obviously, the defense was the worst part of that season for the Cowboys, but any quarterback they threw in there that wasn't Dak, you could just see how much better he makes their offense. And uh, he definitely earned this contract. Some people worry about overpaying, but in this quarterback market, the price just keeps going up every year. And Mahomes made his money, but Dak, but Mahomes is under contract for 10 more years or nine more years, I guess. Whereas with Dak in four years from now, if he's still playing at a high level, he could probably end up making more money than Mahomes just because of how quickly the quarterback salaries continue to scale. And if you have a quarterback who's not a rookie, you need to pay them. Otherwise someone else will, because it's the most valuable position. And that's just where majority of teams monies go. So it was something that the Cowboys had to do. They get him. The contract is fine. It, obviously, it's expensive, but that is the going rate for a quarterback of his caliber. And hope I wish the best for him. And hopefully uh, the Cowboys offense can be just as electric as it started out last year when he was on pace to break the single season passing yards record. And uh, uh, my girlfriend's very happy about it because she wants to see the Cowboys do well. And, and she's a big fan. So. It will be interesting to follow them. Uh, and of course, a fun offense when they're clicking with all their weapons that they have down in Jerry World. Okay. News that came in just before we hopped on the podcast. Cam Newton returning to the New England Patriots. 
Uh, many did not see this coming because of the poor performance he put on this season. Of course, his career has been riddled with injuries in recent years, the shoulder uh, primarily being the one of worry, but also a foot injury. And Patriots fans were crying in the streets that he couldn't throw it more than 10 yards down the field. Of course, quite the difference when you had the greatest quarterback of all time with you for the last 20 years prior. Uh, But I guess he is an insurance blanket. I don't imagine he's going to be the starter, but they're keeping him in there. I had, I imagine Bill Belichick has will have some plays drawn up where he can run Cam out of the with the quarterback power plays like that, and that's why they're hanging on to him because he's essentially a running back who can throw occasionally at this point in his career. Um, I imagine the Patriots will look for a quarterback in the draft or look to sign one in the offseason to be the bona fide starter, but Cam provides competition and he provides a different look. So even if you're complaining about his lack of arm strength now and uh, someone who can fold easily under the pressure as he has lost a bit of his mobility, he is still a guy who has been an MVP at some point in the season and has seen a lot of what the NFL has to offer uh, and is still a physical specimen. So best of luck to Cam. I don't think he'll be the starter come come time for the Patriots, but uh, at least he's got a job because the last year at this time he was still looking for one so happy that he's locked it up we switch gears to the other football and we had champions league earlier this week tuesday was a a good day for my housemates and and definitely brought some entertaining footy out in on the pitch uh we had (laughs) dortmund making up for that brutal blown lead in der classica on the weekend uh coming out and playing some playing great defensive side. Uh, they get two goals and are managed to hold on based on aggregate as Sevilla scores two late ones to actually make things interesting. Um, but Dorman hangs on to advance. And this kid, Erling Holland, if you don't know his name yet, you better learn it. Cause he is now, I was reading this article. So he has scored 20 goals in 14 games in champions league. Ronaldo had zero through 20. Messi had four through 20. Mbappe, who is breaking records, I think he had seven through 20 games. Like this Holland kid is shattering the record books right now. He's 19. He's an absolute tank. Like he looks like he's 615 out there. Like he's so big. And he's outscored like any of the greatest modern people you can think of. Terry Henry, uh, Ronaldo, uh, Raul, all these like great scores. Lewandowski, Holland is blowing them out of the water. He's the quickest to score 20 goals in Champions League. Youngest to score 20 goals in Champions League. Uh, first to score two plus goals in four consecutive games in Champions League. He is already the all-time Norwegian leader in goals scored in Champions League. Uh, he's 19 and he's just getting started. So I feel for Dorman because you know some team is going to come off the top rope and make them an offer they cannot refuse. Just as PSG went and bought Mbappe for an obscene amount of money uh, and Neymar got bought for an obscene amount of money, you know it's coming for this kid because he's just been scoring goals at a rapid pace and really fun to watch and really fun uh, to experience with a Dortmund fan in the house because he is absolutely loving what Holland's doing right now. Uh, but the, the, the dude is just tank. Like, it's incredible to watch him go. I will slide over to the next game on that Tuesday. Juventus 
uh, who I guess the demons pop up again for them in Champions League because Porto surprised them with a 2-1 win in uh, in the first leg and Juventus comes back out and really, really flat performance. Ronaldo, nowhere to be found in this game. And uh, Porto scores again and gives them an away goal that really puts Juventus in a bit of trouble. Juventus ends up scoring twice to tie it. Uh, they had they had another goal that was called back VAR offside, Port Morata. They hit the crossbar, and it goes to extra time because they're tied on aggregate, and they're tied on away goals, uh, which is something a lot of people in North America still don't understand. And people explain it in such a difficult way. All you have to know is if you they play two games, you add up the goals for each team, and if it's a tie – the tiebreaker is the team that scored the most goals away. That's all you have to know. People like some people say like away goals count for two. That's just confusing. Just do what is the score at the end, and then who scored the most away goals if it's tied. Pretty easy to understand. <sighs> well, yeah. Then the, the, the it's different, right? Because not a lot of sports do two legs, right? They'll do a best of series where you actually have a winner and a loser. But the thing is, in soccer, with there's so many ties that they just needed to figure out a, a mechanism to keep the round short. So we go to extra time and back and forth. Uh, Porto is now is, has been down a man due to a red card for about half an hour to 45 minutes at this point. And they win a free kick. And Oliveira, with the absolutely brilliant free kick under the wall, puts it in the bottom left. Uh, Porto is freaking out because this is another away goal. Juventus comes back late and scores to uh, give them the lead 3-2 in the game. But since Porto has now scored that extra away goal, they win at the end of extra time. And Juventus chokes against an undermanned side with only 10 men, with all the star power in the world, and they lose to the underdog Portuguese team. Uh, so a stunning loss and absolutely awesome football to watch this week. Uh, we had Liverpool moving on uh, as well as PSG holding against Barcelona with Messi missing yet another penalty. What else is new in his career? It's like the one thing that has haunted and eluded him, uh, obviously, besides a, a world championship or a uh, South American championship. But the penalties continue to be a factor in Messi's career. He did have a very nice goal in the game, but just not enough. And it seems like there's a bit of a changing of the guard with Kylian Mbappe and uh, Holland moving up the ranks and, and Ronaldo and Messi starting to enter the, the twilight of their careers. So an interesting storyline to follow there. But yeah, really fun week to watch in the house. I, I hadn't been into soccer that much and I'm starting to get back into it just because of my roommate being a big Dortmund fan and uh kind of forgetting how much fun it is to watch some of these these high-level tournaments uh, while they're going out on. Um, still got to get myself up early in the morning to tune into Premier League. I haven't gotten there yet. But the Champions League, always fun time. So good stuff <laughs> across the pond. And I will finish up this long, rambling speech with a little bit of baseball as we move to Florida and the Toronto Blue Jays are starting to have a couple answers in the rotation. Uh, with Steven Matz being impressive so far in spring training, he's gone six innings total. He hasn't allowed a run. 
His last one, he had three strikeouts and allowed only one hit. Um, so definitely someone who could be looking to snag one of those middle to late spots in the rotation, which is great. He's a lefty, which may cause some troubles for the Yankees, Rays, those top competitors. Uh, just happy to see that someone's starting to take a step forward and really own that spot in the rotation. But I wanted to spend this last segment talking about a guy who came to the league a couple years ago, but now has gone on the radar and has been injured quite a lot. And he's starting to now finally show why people have been so, so, so excited for him. And that is Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels. He, and, and so there's this great article that I just read written by Ben Lindbergh at the ringer talking about how Otani has potential to be like a Babe Ruth where he just last week launched a 470 foot home run and simultaneously through five strikeouts on the mound. Yeah. So that is, that is the fun little twist we have with Shohei is he is an elite hitter as well as an elite pitcher uh, back in 2015 in Japan. He led the league in wins above replacement 10.5, which actually matches Mike Trout's career high wins above replacement. If that says anything, because a lot of people now think that Mike Trout is perhaps the greatest baseball player of all time. I don't think he is until he wins a world series, but if he's a guy, a guy like Otani on his team, then he definitely has a shot because this guy is incredible. His splitter is filth. He can touch triple digits if he wants with the fastball. And the fact that he can also step up to the plate and just yam home runs makes him super, super exciting and definitely someone to follow. Um, if you're, if you're a seam head, if you're a baseball fan, you really got to get into this guy because he is something we haven't ever seen in our lifetime because uh, Babe Ruth was quite a long time ago. And so definitely someone to tune into long-term. I don't think he'll be able to pitch and hit for many seasons at a time, but right now enjoy this season because this might be something we never see again. Uh, and so really, really exciting to watch him pitch and hit. Um, and in the long term, we'll see, he'll probably choose one position, but for now, enjoy it because it's super, super exciting and, and we won't see anything like this again. I was going to ask, is there any deliberation that goes on then of should we give this guy a fielding position because we want what he brings to the plate or you can't have him pitch one game field four games and then pitch the next game as a rotation a like that's too rough on the arm yeah so right now what they've what they've been doing is they have him in the designated hitter slot when he's pitching because you can do that um now in the national league they both leagues have now gone to a designated hitter uh which means you can add an extra bat to your lineup but if you want, you can have the pitcher there, and that's what the Angels are doing. Uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do in terms of the days when he's not pitching. I imagine he'll play designated hitter for the most part, just consistently, where he only has to come off the bench and hit in his off days if he's going to be pitching. But he has some experience playing first base, and they have like he is an athletic guy, and he's got some speed, so he also has played a little bit of outfield when he hasn't been able to pitch because he has had some injuries in recent years. So they have a lot of options right now. I see him doing pitching and designated hitting as the season goes. And you'll see him a couple times at first play base, maybe to give Albert Pujols a rest occasionally. Um, but mostly just fun, like to watch a guy pitch who also can hit for power. Uh, so that'll be something that I want to follow. Even if the angels 
don't necessarily like he is he's a huge x factor because the angels consistently have been wasting away mike trout's years and if they have a guy like this they there's no excuse for them not making the playoffs well nice to hear the words fun in baseball put in the same sentence by someone yes and it will be fun because the blue jays are back and canada's buzzing with baseball ish i wish they were here but i don't know what We've been getting a lot of traffic on our site for baseball. So obviously there are people out there that love it and you can hate on it all you want, but um, if they figure out a way to market their superstars and, and bring some actual fun, like not jokingly, if they can bring some actual fun to the sport and speed it up a little bit, there's still potential for baseball to uh, make a comeback from this dive that they're taking in ratings. That's I saw some headline at some point over the past couple weeks or month just about the uh, strikeout rate being like ridiculously higher and increasing over the last years and just like the the hitting percentage has gone way down and that seems to be a part of it. Yeah, it's a lot of guys now who are hitting who are going all or nothing on the swings. A lot of guys who hit for a ton of power who also strike out a lot and teams are okay with that because the home run is super valuable based on data. And so you've got a lot of guys and I think they should really just juice the baseballs a little bit, change the makeup a little bit so that they launch because there's going to be a lot of home runs this year, but there are also going to be a lot of strikeouts. So <laughs> that is what baseball is slowly going towards, um, which is why I'm excited about the Jays. Cause I think they have a little bit of that, but they also have some guys who keep the lineup moving and get hits rather than trying to go yard which was what the downfall of the, the Jays of 2015-16. Um, yes, definitely a factor, but mostly it's just the length of the game is something they still need to continually figure out. And when they went to seven inning games for double headers last summer, uh, something they tried out in a shortened season, people really seemed to enjoy that. I love the seven innings. It's a lot more easily digestible. Uh, so something they should consider moving forward. All right, that was long-winded, but we got through all three sports without a break. Uh, and Max, yeah. <laughs> Max, do you have anything left you want to talk about on this fine Friday? Um, I might actually get out and shoot some hoops today. It looks to be that nice. Yeah, I think I've got to get a new basketball in order for the new season. No, I, I guess uh, I'll say I'll give a couple of quick shout outs to the rest of the UFC card. You've got uh, Misha Serkinov, Ryan Spann in the co-main spot, which is fantastic. Eric, Ander, Eric Anders, Darren Stewart, Angela Hill versus Ashley Yoder has been rebooked. Uh, Charles Jourdain, the Canadian fighting again. Nazrat Hapgrast, um, phenomenal lightweight striker. So I, I forgot to get to that earlier, but there's a lot of great fights on this card uh not a lot i i use tsn you use sportsnet so the men's canadian curling championship i believe is coming to a head the tim hortons briar cup uh <laughs> having cool with the upset earlier this week <laughs> oh there you go you're not you're not even tuned in as much as i theoretically should be and you know more than i do but <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if people want to listen to curling stuff, but it is prevalent when you live up here in Canada and it's a sport that still gets shine and yeah, well, is I... very popular when the Olympics roll around. Yes. <laughs> we'll, uh, 
some switch just flips on when like gold medals and uh winter olympic hegemony becomes at stake yeah it should be a great weekend of sports uh i should get my new top shot pack this weekend to open on monday if not we'll push to friday but i i should have it uh for monday and yeah uh, my roommate has been really obsessed. There's a big Valorant tournament. So if you're into esports and uh, video gaming tournaments, there's a huge tournament for Valorant this weekend that has captured the attention of many, uh, myself not included, but maybe we'll have a little bit of coverage for that if anything big happens. Uh, I know FaZe Clan is a big name and, and they had a win yesterday. That's really all I know, but... <laughs> Hey, I remember that e-sports. name back from like the COD days. Yeah. If, if you're a big esports fan, hit us up and maybe we'll throw some coverage in. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Look forward to uh, talking to you all again on Monday and, and bringing you up to speed on the world of sports. Um, and Max, I'll leave it to you, my friend. Get out. Enjoy the weather for the weekend. I know we will. Sports Next Door signing out.